0: This week, 100 genomes from the Bronze
1: Age, a tumultuous time in human history. This is where the archaeologists have been hypothesising for a long time that, that some major changes must have happened.
2: And the US Defense Department has a new biology office, and it's not afraid of a challenge.
1: DARPA is a place
3: where you're challenged to solve impossible problems. We look at ways to say yes, not the way to say no
0: plus the genetic mutation that protects against a deadly disease. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 11th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith.
2: And I'm Adam Levy. In the mid-20th century, a mystery epidemic plagued a remote region of Papua New Guinea. The disease, known as Kuru, caused physical and mental deterioration, and eventually death. When someone died in one of these communities, the tradition wasn't to bury or cremate them. Instead their body would be eaten. It turned out that eating the brain, which had been made spongy by the disease, was the cause of new infections. Unlike other infectious diseases, though, kuru isn't caused by a microbe. Kuru is a prion disease, caused by proteins that don't fold properly. These misfolded proteins clump together and recruit others to join their tangled web. But some people from the affected communities didn't get kuru, Researcher John Collins from University College London has been studying the genes of these survivors. I paid him a visit at his lab. He told me what causes humans to develop one of these deadly diseases, because not all prion diseases are caused by cannibalism.
4: So there are three basic, basic ways you can get a, a human prion disease. There's the sporadic disease, which occurs out of the blue. It, it occurs all over the world at a very uniform uh, incidence. Or they can be inherited and about 15 percent of prion disease we see in the uk runs in families and occurs because you've inherited a faulty prion protein gene from one of your parents um, and then you have the acquired forms of disease where someone's caught prions from some exposure in the environment and these are the forms of the disease that tend to hit the headlines. Of course, variant CJD, which was caused by exposure to, to BSE or mad cow disease. But the archetypal example of an acquired prion disease is the disease Kuru, where a group of people known as the Foray uh, were affected by this devastating degenerative brain disease, which was killing up to 2% of the population a year. Subsequent work established uh, that this was a transmissible disease in th- th- caused by what we now refer to as a prion.
2: And what was causing the disease to be transmitted in this case?
4: So the disease was caused by cannibalism, essentially. It was a very important part of their culture and respect for their dead relatives to have mortuary feasts, and the whole body was consumed by the immediate family. And that will have included the brain and the spinal cord, the nervous tissue, which contains virtually all the infectious prams. Virtually everybody that sits down at one of these feasts and were exposed to the infectious material, will themselves go on to develop kuru. And then, of course, in turn, they would be eaten by their relatives.
2: What was previously known about uh, the pran protein in this population and how it differed from people in Western Europe, say?
4: What we've been looking at are the survivors of the kuru epidemic. We were able to identify, over the course of our field studies, uh, actually several hundred individuals in the population that we knew had been exposed at multiple feasts but hadn't developed the disease. And one of the things we did was to sequence the prime protein gene uh, in all these individuals, and we found a number of of families right at the epicentre of the epidemic that had uh, that position of the prime protein, 127, where normally you have the amino acid glycine, these individuals had uh, valine. That amino acid is a glycine in every known vertebrate species, so evolution over many tens of millions of years has maintained that amino acid. But in these individuals, right at the epicentre of the Kura epidemic, they have this difference that we've not seen anywhere else in the world.
2: How did you investigate in this upcoming paper what this variant of the prion protein might be doing differently?
4: So we made several lines of genetically modified mice, and what we found was when we uh, recreated the human genetic type, so the mice had both the normal protein and the variant protein at roughly equal amounts, uh, like the humans would, what we found is that they were completely resistant to Kuru uh, and also to Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. But the most surprising finding is when we looked at mice which only made the variant form of the protein, these mice were completely resistant to all prion strains. We put in 18 different uh, infectious isolates from humans of all the different strains that we know of in humans and we, not a single mouse became infected. The mice just expressing this form of the prion protein are as resistant to prions as if you got rid of the protein altogether, if you'd knocked out the protein in mice.
2: Do you have any idea what the mechanism for this finding might be?
4: So what that indicates is that the protein itself is, is, not, is not capable of forming prions. Not only does the variant protein not make prions itself, but actually it inhibits the wild-type pro- protein uh, making prions too. Could new
2: understanding like this offer any insight into treatment or prevention of prion diseases?
4: I think if we can understand its molecular mechanism, it may cast light on new ways of, of treating the disease. And not just for the prion diseases, but it's now becoming apparent that all the major degenerative brain diseases, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease in particular, which are very common debilitating diseases, also involve accumulation of these protein polymers. So I think understanding how uh, this could completely stop that process may also uh, provide insights into how to stop Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease too.
2: We're sitting talking in the prawn unit at UCL, What would you say are the remaining big unanswered questions facing the prion scientific community?
4: I think the big question remains exactly what the structure of prions are at an atomic level. What it is about these particular structures that enables them to be very effective pathogens, and they are very effective pathogens, no one's ever survived a prion disease. If you develop symptoms of one of these diseases, you will die. Um, And understanding, I think, their, their atomic structure is going to be of great interest.
2: That was John Collinge discussing human prion diseases. For the full paper, head over to nature.com forward slash nature.
4: Coming up,
0: the head of the US Defence Department's new biology office talks exoskeletons and invading
2: aliens. But first, Noah Baker is here with this week's research highlights.
5: Can chimpanzees cook? Of course not. But scientists have shown that chimps can at least understand cooking. Researchers used small fake ovens, which were actually plastic tubs, to test whether chimps preferred cooked food to raw. The chimps were offered raw potato in the tub, which they could eat then, or they could wait a few seconds while the researcher shook the tub to cook the food, which emerged from a hidden compartment. Chimps happily ignored the raw food to get the cooked spuds, even though they had to wait. And they even learned to store raw food until a cooker became available. So maybe chimps have the cognitive capacity for cooking, even if they don't do it without prompting. I know a few humans like that. More in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Scientists have made a microscopic robot powered by light. It's only a tenth of a millimetre long, but it can walk, turn and even jump distances a hundred times its own body length. Its body is made from a muscle-like material which can contract and expand. It's then coated in a light-sensitive dye. Shining laser light on the robot makes it shuffle in a straight line or jump. Robots like these could one day be powered by ambient light and could add swimming to their repertoire. The full paper is in advanced materials.
0: Think of DARPA, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and maybe you think of robots, drones, and stealth weapons. Although they are part of the U.S. military, DARPA has a role in your life, too. They invented the internet, for example, and GPS. Well, for about a year now, DARPA has also had a biology arm. Sarah Reardon has been finding out what it's up to and meeting the man in charge.
6: Jeff Ling has run DARPA's Biological Technologies Office since it opened in April 2014. The agency is known for its gung-ho style. Fun things quickly, fail quickly, and make breakthroughs. And Ling pretty much epitomizes
3: that. DARPA is an amazing place. It is a place where you're challenged to solve what is thought to be impossible problems. We look at ways to say yes, not the way to say no.
6: DARPA's biology office has said yes to a lot of brave, some would even say crazy, projects lately. I asked Jeff Ling to describe a few of them to me. First, exoskeletons, to help soldiers and eventually civilians, too.
3: People think of the exoskeleton, ooh, it's like uh, aliens, you know, where, I um, uh, forget, uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver gets in that thing and starts clunking around and all that. No, it's not that. What it is is it asks simple questions and how can we make running more efficient, lifting more efficient, and the like. Small improvement in efficiency causes a great drop in metabolic demand of an activity. Like, for example, a 15% improved efficiency in, in stride, reduces walkings metabolic demand by 30 40 percent it's amazing so that in a sense is how we're improving the, the physical performance of soldiers but think about if you're old my mom's 85 okay if she could put on this shoe or boot and get 15 percent improvement in her gait and 30 percent reduction in metabolic demand my mom would i'm going to tell you what my mom would do my mom would be, she lives in manhattan she'd be walking all over the place she wouldn't take the damn bus anymore that's like
6: way cool so it's clearly not just super soldiers that Ling imagines when he thinks about the applications of DARPA research. It's the public too to DARPA, the future of all humanity is a future where humans and machines work in partnership, linking our bodies
3: as well as our minds. Neuroscience is taking us into I think into a into a future that that is very exciting and a little bit scary. We are now creating the new set of tools where now humans are going to be immersive into their environment much differently than driving a car, or wielding a hammer. Our brains can interact with our environment, and we can act at the speed of thought.
6: Ling is aware that there are two sides to this science, and DARPA's primary mission is to anticipate surprises and be ready to defend against threats, no matter how far out there. They're even thinking about starting
3: an astrobiology program. Why exoplanetary studies, you would ask? Today's threats are around us. Tomorrow's threats may not. They may come up from there. We don't know. But, you know, to think that kumbaya, they're going to come down and they're going to come with a basket of flowers, that's a real good wish, right? But if they don't come down with a basket of flowers, then now what the hell are you going to do, right? And to figure it out then? I mean, that's like not a good time to start figuring it out. So what we have to do is we have to think dynamically. That's how I express it to, you know, the powers that be. But truthfully, you know why I think it is? Because I think it's the coolest damn thing in the world. Irrefutable proof of exoplanetary life. That is, without a doubt... Going to be the most exciting scientific news like in the in the history of mankind. And I'd love it for it be funded by DARPA.
0: <laughs> that was Jeff Ling, head of DARPA's biology office, talking to Sarah Reardon. And Sarah's on the line from DC. Do people outside DARPA have the same degree of positivity that I felt from Ling there?
6: I think that a lot of people are inherently skeptical about DARPA just because it is the US military and people worry about what the military actually wants to be doing. Are they wanting to be controlling people's minds or releasing these organisms out into the environments in other countries, or or something like that. But at the same time, it is worth keeping an eye on on these questions, and I think the DARPA, for their part, are, are at least thinking about these questions. They have a lot of ethicists that they consult, and I think that they appreciate that people are concerned and interested in what they're doing.
0: It seems quite a compelling idea, at least maybe for a scientist, to um, to be able to have a grant with almost no strings attached, you know, fund things quickly, fail quickly. Is that a model that you think could work in the rest of science?
6: It's a model that's worked for DARPA in some areas. Um, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, they had the internet and the GPS were um, inventions that came out of DARPA and came out of this kind of high-risk science. And it's something that's been talked about a lot in other agencies, such as the um, NIH, which funds biomedical research in the U.S. here, and the um, U.S. Department of Energy also has sort of a DARPA spin-off. spinoff. Um, and a lot of these programs, though, are still so new that we don't really know how well they work as opposed to some of this incremental peer-reviewed science um, that we might be more used to. But at the same time, a lot of people agree that in some areas like mental health, for instance, which is something that DARPA is interested in, um, things like PTSD in the military, we've really hit a wall in science. Um, incremental advances just aren't doing it. And so people are willing to experiment and try something new and we'll, we'll see how it goes. And as DARPA has realized, biology is a technology, and it's something that in the future could become very much a strategic pawn um, biological weapons, for instance, or some sort of enhanced um, soldiers. It's something that governments and militaries are realising that they, they need to address and take seriously.
0: Reporter Sarah Reardon there, and before, you heard from Jeff Ling, the head of DARPA's Biological Technologies Office. Read Sarah's feature for free at nature.com. news
2: If you think trends move fast now, consider the Bronze Age. During this period, about three to 5,000 years ago, people in Europe and Asia were adopting new cultural practices like they were going out of style. From the languages they spoke to how they traveled around, the Bronze Age was a tumultuous time. To find out how these new ideas spread, Morten Ellentoft's team, based at the Natural History Museum in Copenhagen, sequenced the genomes of 101 Bronze Age humans. He told nature reporter Ewan Calloway why his team undertook one of the largest ancient DNA studies ever published on one of the most revolutionary periods in history.
1: The archaeologists in particular have been debating whether these big changes were facilitated by movement of people or, or more like movement of ideas, you can say. Was it local people who who adapted new methods and developed new technology, or was it actually people moving around facilitating the spread of this, uh, these technologies?
7: And how can looking at ancient human genomes provide answers to these questions?
1: Your genes look different depending on where you are in the world. I mean, certain human populations, have, uh, have they look different genetically, and they do that today as well. So by taking these ancient uh, or, or mapping out the ancient genome of the, of the people of the Bronze Age, we can, we can, uh, we can compare them to each other and, and see how different are they in the various regions. And we can also compare them to modern-day uh, peoples from the same regions. We're focusing mainly on the, on the Bronze Age and in particular the early Bronze Age because this is where the archaeologists have been
7: hypothesizing for a long time
1: that, that some major changes must have happened.
7: The material for these 101 genomes, where did, where did it come from? Did you just mount a massive excavation project?
1: So we have been traveling around museums all over Europe and and Asia, and we have a lot of uh, collaborators that have been eager to to deliver uh, uh, these precious samples, mainly teeth. We have been working mainly with the ancient teeth in this uh, project.
7: So what are these people's genomes telling you about the history of the Bronze Age?
1: At this particular time point, uh, the gene pool in Europe changes. We can see that there's a big influx of uh, genes um, coming in. In Asia, we can see that in Central Asia, the people living, for example, around the Altai Mountains in the 5,000 years ago are basically, they're looking much more European than today. We, we could see the big changes, but the whole question was, okay, what are facilitating the changes? Where are these genes coming from, so to speak? And, uh, and, and we then because we had so many different populations investigated from the Bronze Age, we could narrow down the origin of this uh, big uh, genomic influx. And that seems to be the, the steppe area just north of the Caucasus that is really a key area in understanding uh, the big population migrations at this point in time. And this uh, culture is called the Yamnaya culture.
7: Can we speculate as to why these these people living on the steppe, the, the Yam- Yamnaya people, were so successful in expanding both you know, west into Europe and, and east into, into the Altai?
1: Something like the, the domestication of the horse could be a really important point. I mean, that that allows one to move at a, at a, at much greater speed all of a sudden. But I have to say, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on this particular on this particular matter.
7: You do discuss though that these uh, step peoples might have brought their their languages with them. Uh, can you can you talk about that a little bit more?
1: People that have been studying languages, like linguistics, they have been argued for 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 quite a long time that uh, the whole origin of the most of our or a lot of the languages existing in both uh, present-day Europe and Asia they potentially ori- originated in this uh, region and what we're seeing is that these uh, these uh, the spread of genes or the spread of people at this particular time point both into Asia and into Europe that could fit very well with this uh, this, this particular hypothesis of the origin in this uh, time and region so so it seems to fit
7: and your team also looked at, I believe, some of, some of the genes themselves that these people were bringing with them. I mean, tell us about that story.
1: One of the genes we looked at were, the, were a mutation that codes for, for lactose tolerance. For example, we were quite surprised when we investigated the frequency of this particular uh, mutation uh, in the Bronze Age to so see that it was very, very low. Uh, in, in fact, it's almost uh, not present in Europe uh, this in, in the Bronze Age. And it surprised us because people have been arguing previously that probably this ability to digest lactose was something that arose with the transition into farming. But we can see that even the Bronze Age, which is s- several thousand years after the transition into farming, people are still not able to, to digest the milk.
7: It seems to me, I mean, just as somebody who's followed this field as, as as an outsider, that ancient genomics is is really banging up against human history and, and starting to address, you know, questions that historians and archaeologists used to have as their own. I mean, is this where the field is headed?
1: Yes, for sure. I mean, uh, I think uh, what we're seeing now is uh, is. Um now we're getting into more modern time periods that have been more, as you say, the domain of, of archaeologists, anthropologists, uh, linguists, and see, the, these uh, scientists. And, uh, and these guys, I think a lot of these people are realising that DNA is becoming a, a very useful tool to either uh, yeah, to test the hypothesis, really, because there's been a lot of debates going, and now we can bring in the biological uh, argument into this uh, discussion.
2: That was Morten Allentoft talking to Ewan Calloway. Finally this
0: week, you're expecting the news chat, and that's what you're getting. And joining me in the studio is Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver. Now, a slightly unusual story leading the section this week. It's about homosexuality in Africa. I mean, it sounds like a social, maybe even a political story. It has to do with science, as we'll come to in a minute. But what's the status of homosexuality in the African continent?
8: So of Africa's 53 nations, homosexuality is illegal in 38 and um, punishable by death in four. For many of those countries, it's been illegal for a long time. Um, But anti-gay sentiment has intensified in recent years. And in kind of most notoriously, in um, 2014, Uganda passed a new homophobic law that made same-sex relationships punishable by life imprisonment and also made the promotion of homosexuality a crime. So even kind of handing out leaflets to gay men, to tell them how they could prevent getting HIV, even that could be considered promotion of homosexuality. And this new report is by 13 African academics and is in response mainly to that Ugandan law, but also to the general sort of feeling that this was intensifying.
0: Yeah, you mentioned this report, and this is the unusual facet of this story, really, because here we have academics, many of them scientists, who've written a report to say, here's the evidence on why it's okay to be gay.
8: Yeah, that's right. The things they're addressing are all, they sort of systematically address um, a lot of the assertions that have been made by various um, members of government and faith leaders in Africa to justify these homosexual laws. So things like homosexuality is a Western import, it's unnatural, it's un-African, even that it's socially contagious. So what these um, mainly scientists have done is gone through the research literature and refuted all those things one by one. You know, to someone living in Europe, it sounds almost strange to have to refute those things. But these um, assertions are, are really made in Africa and really used to justify these laws. And in some cases, they've gone
0: back to even 19th century literature or historical literature and said, look, you know, there's, there are cases of homosexuality happening right throughout the history of the continent, along with modern evidence, of course.
8: Yeah, one strand of evidence was this historical... Um, literature reports from a lot of them from early European travelers to Africa, reporting um, same sex relationships between women and men. And then there's also um, citing the scientific literature in terms of a growing feeling in recent decades or growing evidence that homosexuality is a biological thing. Another strand of evidence that they raise is that a recent survey showed that at least 2% of men in Africa um, were gay. And that's in line with the global finding that at least 1.5% of men in any given population will be gay. So it's pretty exhaustive, this report. As you say, it's very long.
0: Is there any indication that it's going to help change the minds of the policymakers who've put these
8: anti-gay laws in place? So there's certainly um, activists, healthcare workers really welcome the report. But at the same time, there is a feeling that a lot of these homophobic feelings are very, very deeply entrenched. So it's not something that's going to change quickly. And in fact, in the short term, it might not do anything. But on the plus side... Um, it's certainly a start and uh, one of the authors who's the only Ugandan on the panel who wrote the report says if policymakers kind of take a lead in this, the rest of the country might eventually follow. So it's an encouraging start. One activist even said something sort of jokingly, but that he plans to get hold of the report and will use it akin to how they use the Bible on us.
0: Strong sentiments, obviously, on both sides. Now, um, moving on to story number two, and it's a real change of tack. This is a story by Lizzie Gibney, one of our reporters, who often writes about physics, sometimes materials. And this is kind of a material story, but also for the brain. Uh, This is about an injectable brain mesh, basically.
8: So this is about using brain implants to spy on neural activity and gain insights that could help to sort of prise open how the brain works and for a long time brain implants haven't been have or have had limited use in doing this because they tend to be rigid and that can destroy neurons and also make it difficult to track them over time so if you want to sort of get really good data on on neural activity you need to do it on the same neuron for a long time to figure out what's really going on and something rigid won't follow the the movement of these of these neurons as an animal moves or breathes or whatever now here we have instead of that very
0: rigid network we have sort of a mesh it just looks like a little net basically
8: yeah that's right so another problem with a with a brain implant is how you actually get it into the brain and so that's what's really clever about this work this can be injected so it's a mesh that rolls up um into a really really thin tube and then gets injected with a needle through a tiny tiny hole in the skull this is done in mice, by the way, not yet in humans. But then once it gets into the brain, the mesh unrolls, kind of like chicken wire. And then it actually covers quite a large volume and could have let you, can let you um, monitor these neurons over time. And because it's flexible, it can stick with the neurons and, and solve this problem of ha- how you monitor them over time. This paper in Nature Nanotechnology that's just been published this week uh, is
0: kind of a proof of principle, isn't it? I mean, do we have much of a sense of how well it's going to work?
8: Very much a proof of principle. They managed to monitor 16 uh, neurons in anesthetized mice. They'd like to monitor many, many more neurons. I mean, if you're going to start getting really interesting ideas about how the brain works, you would definitely need to monitor more. And then the researchers also hope it could have potential for humans, especially for um, diseases like Parkinson's disease, which currently brain implants are used to, in this case, activate the neurons. But they're only used in very extreme cases because of the extremeness of an operation that would implant a brain implant today. The, the researchers hope that because this is so much less invasive, it could open up that therapy to a lot more people with Parkinson's. OK, well, Celeste Beaver, thank you very much for coming
0: in. The brain owned by Celeste Beaver is uh, so quick that no one could ever hope to measure it. Thanks for joining us. Uh, more on both those stories at nature.com news.
2: That's all, folks. Next time, how clever is your garden? Plants show us their intelligent side. I'm Adam Levy.
0: And I'm Kerry Smith.